The 2023 Rugby World Cup is set to kick off in France on the 8th of September and will run until the 28th of October. All eyes are on the Springboks following their third Rugby World Cup win in 2019. Do they have what it takes? Nick Mallett, who coached the box at the 1999 World Cup, has become a household name for his incisive and forthright commentary and analysis. Join him as he takes us into the beating heart of the tournament. He tackles the following key questions. How strong are the box going into the Rugby World Cup? Who are the favourites to win and why? And how does one play the referee, both on and off the field? Amongst many other questions. This book is titled Insights into the Rugby World Cup, and it is a book for everyone, fan of the sport or not. In this episode of PageCast, Nick Mallett is in conversation with co-author Lloyd Bernard, who's also sports editor of News24. Enjoy the chat, and may the Springboks take us to victory. Welcome, my name is Lloyd Bernard. I'm the sports editor at News24. Very fortunate to be joined today by former Springbok coach, current Supersport analyst, and most importantly, News24 Sports rugby columnist, Nick Mallett. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Nick. No, it's a pleasure, Lloyd. We're here to discuss uh, something that doesn't fit into any three of those categories, though. Nick's out with a new book, a lovely little pocket guide entitled Insights into the Rugby World Cup, that is News24's Book of the Month. Congratulations, Nick. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very happy about that, but uh, thank you too for your help with it. I mean, it was, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have managed it on my own, so it was, uh, it was really good getting your input and, and, and your help with it, and it was a lot of fun working with you. So I'm, I'm glad it's come out. I'm glad it's come out in time, and uh, hopefully there are enough good stories in there for even a non-rugby supporter to enjoy. We were chatting uh, before going on here, and I think we both quite chuffed with how it's come out. Yeah, it looks great. I think Jonathan Ball have done a fantastic job on all fronts. Uh, just what was the process like for you? You've obviously been doing the column yeah. for us for well over a year now. So, you know, the writing element of your, yeah. your rugby uh, punditry, if we can yes. call it, you are flexing that muscle now weekly on News24 yeah. with your column. But uh, how different was this? I still enjoy doing the, the column, especially during the busy times, test matches, the end of the URC and stuff like that. But uh, this was more challenging, obviously. It's a, it's a longer and more detailed in what you have to do. And I think um, breaking it up into the chapters that you did, uh, defining exactly what needed to be uh, researched or remembered from my point of view was a huge help. And so uh, the way in which we did it, the two of us, was, you know, you'd give me the topic, you'd say in two days time, I'm going to be giving you a call, I'm going to be phoning you at 10 o'clock, and then you let me go. I can chat about rugby, as you well know, for a very long time. So it was, uh, you know, we'd do about an hour, and then you'd distill all that into a chapter, send it back, and we'd, you know, debate it, and then, um, you know, that was done. But it was, um, it was, it was good fun. I really, I did enjoy it, and I'm, you know, I'm really happy with the way it, it, it's come out. As I've said to people who've asked me about it, I said that, my wife likes it and my mum likes it. And, um, you know, they're not massive rugby supporters. So if they've enjoyed the book, then clearly there's something in there for everyone. Yeah, I, th- I think what it does nicely is, is set up, you know, Rugby World Cup 2023 for everybody. I think you can be somebody who doesn't necessarily, you know, know the ins and outs of the Boktite Five, but you can read this book and kind of get put into a very you know, a comfortable place of what to expect heading into the tournament. Your passion for the game resonates throughout the book and it starts in 95 where you open with, 
you know, what I think is a lovely little tribute to, to Jonah Lomu, the late Jonah Lomu and his contribution to, to global rugby uh, and World Cup rugby, recalling your memories of, of 1995 and how you were in the stadium yeah. that day when he ran through England in, in a lovely little, little chapter. Just speak to that a little bit and how in 95 this product was, you know, born uh, and what it's become today. Rugby was, it was started, it was already a, a sport that was attracting, you know, huge crowds. Uh, the six, the, in that time, I think it was probably the six, no, not quite the Six Nations yet, 95, I'm not sure when Italy came in. Around about that time, Italy was uh, involved in the Six Nations. But, you know, they'd be full stadiums when the Springboks were, uh, got back into international rugby and played full stadiums. Rugby had the potential to be a professional sport. But it needed a star, it needed a Tiger Woods, it needed a Shaquille O'Neal, you know, someone like that, someone who really captured the imagination uh, for, for people who've never seen the game and said, this is incredible, we've never seen. And, and Jonah Lomu was that person, you know, he was able to, in those games he played in the 95 World Cup, he was, he was able to transcend the sport uh, like no one else had ever done before. He was, before, it's a, it has always been a collective game, rugby, and, and it depends on, uh, the intricate understanding of a front row and a second row and a hooker and, his, and the lock jumping. But here was a guy who could change a game, gave, given the ball with not a lot of space, and that guy could run through three or four people with ease. And it was interesting that it, it, was, um, it was seeing that performance against England where he scored a try from 40 meters out, an absolutely sensational try that got uh, the, the, the interest of Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, who was involved obviously with... Uh, well, the, uh, the, the Packer got professional cricket going, but Murdoch wanted to get professional rugby going. And he wasn't a rugby supporter, he, but he just said, wow, we've got to, this, this guy deserves to be paid for doing something like that. Yeah. And, and essentially that's what it is. Players were performing incredibly, they were attracting crowds, they were getting huge television audiences, and they weren't getting paid. And that doesn't make sense. As soon as you can provide entertainment, then you deserve to be paid for it. And Jonah Lomu sort of broke through the, the glass ceiling of amateurism if, 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 yeah. in a funny way. That's, I think a lot of rugby players can thank him in the same way as a lot of golfers can thank uh, Tiger Woods for earning as much as they do today. Rugby players can, can say thank you to Jonah for, for bringing the attention of the business world to rugby and, and, and the attractiveness that it has for television audiences. And set up the, the Rugby World Cup really into what it is today, which is you know the blockbuster product of the sport. And then, Nick, you write beautifully about your own experience in 1999 when you had the honour of leading the Springboks to a Rugby World Cup. Um, the highs and the lows, the pride that comes with that, and then also the devastation of getting knocked out of a Rugby World Cup semi-final. What was it like revisiting that tournament and your own experience of, of living a World Cup? It's strange, you know, I've never, I mean, I've, I've been shown a couple of times that Larkham drop goal, but it's a game I haven't ever gone through again. I, it's just uh, too hurtful, it's too painful. I remember thinking... You know, we'd fought our way into that position. We'd done really well against England with a Yanni Debia drop goals. Got into this uh, semi-final against, clearly, we were the two best teams at that tournament, uh, proven by the fact that Australia went on to beat France by 30-odd points, and we went on to beat New Zealand in the third and fourth place. You know, we were in a position then of, um, in my mind, that was the final. If we could win this game, I thought the next week was going to be easier than that. And we were we punched toe-to-toe with them, right up until extra time, first game, first rugby knockout game that had gone into extra time and we, we went up by three points, they came back 
and then the drop goal went over, then, you know, then, you know, we, it's only 10 minutes both sides. And to have something ripped away from you uh, when you're that close is devastating because you've, you've put so much into it and you've, you understand what it means to a rugby mad country like South Africa. You understand the people at home who are desperate for good news. And there's no doubt the sport is good news in South Africa. And it was a really tough year for South Africa because Australia put us out of the Cricket <laughs> World yeah. Cup and we were knocked out by Australia in the Rugby World Cup as well. We had the run out between Klusner and, and uh, was it Donald, I think it was. And then in ours, it was Larkham's Rothkoll. He's never kicked one again in his life. So it was a tough moment, but it, it doesn't take away the pride I had of being the coach of the Springboks. You know, we'd had a fantastic run from 97 to 98, end of 98. And we tried our best, you know. It wasn't as though anyone didn't give 100%. Just sometimes, sometimes you're just not on the right side of, of a freak of occurrence. And that was, that was one of them. You know, you're right about the Springbok machine at the Rugby World Cup and how regardless of what form South Africa's in going into a World Cup, they always seem to be there at the business end. And they, and they are. I mean, they you know, have always gotten out of the groups, always quarterfinals at the very least. This time around, though, there's, there's a feeling that 2023 could be the most open World Cup that we've seen yet. It's the rise of the North, yeah. the way the Northern Hemisphere has closed the gap. But it's also the draw and the way the draws, you know, brought a whole lot of teams who, who wouldn't necessarily be in play into play and, and yeah. into semi-final contention. Would you agree that this is the most open Rugby World yeah. Cup yet? Yeah, with no doubt. I think for two different reasons. On our side, uh, top five teams playing each other, which means that three will get knocked out before the semi-finals, just because one gets knocked out before the pool stages, before the quarterfinals rather, in the pool stages. And that's in our pool. We've got, obviously, Ireland is number one in the world. We are number four and Scotland's number five. Now, one of us won't get through. So that's already an incredibly tough pool. And Tonga might have something to say as well as the fourth. It looks pretty solid that France and, and New Zealand will get out of the Pool B, but when we have to play each other in the quarterfinals, that'll leave three of the top five top best sides in the world not in the, in the semifinals. So that's one side of things. Makes it very, very hard for us. On the other side of the draw, it opens it up so much more because suddenly it's 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th in the world who are far easier to beat now if you're 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th. So Georgia has a very good chance of beating Wales. Argentina is probably the favourites. They've already beaten, they've beaten England at Twickenham. They've beaten New Zealand in New Zealand. They've beaten Australia away and they very nearly beat South Africa this last weekend. So they are probably the favourites in their group, although everyone in England won't agree with that. They, obviously, they think traditionally England should go through. Traditionally, Australia should go through, but they can't buy a win at the moment. You know, Wales are, are, are appalling. So between Wales and Australia, and suddenly you get Georgia and Fiji, who could spring a big surprise there. And maybe one of Australia and Wales don't get through. Maybe England doesn't get through because Japan suddenly comes in and, and, and throws a span in the works. So there's a lot, there are a lot of banana skins on that side of the draw. And on our side of the draw, there are rugby cup finals every second weekend you know it opens up with with france against new zealand i mean that could be the world cup final yeah. in fact they could play each other in the world despite op in the opening yeah. game when we play ireland that's like a world cup final when we play the semi-finals the quarterfinals they are like world cup finals so yeah. on our side of the draw it's huge intensity and difficult games and the other side of the draw weaker teams but uh, the pools are much more fluid and, and more difficult to select who's going to get through the Springboks in preparations to the Rugby World Cup now, just recently a couple of little wobbles. Yeah. But you would expect, you know, with the warm-up games to come in the coming weeks, by the time that opening yeah. clash against Scotland comes around, you would expect uh, the box to be primed and ready and, 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 and title contenders again? 
There's no doubt. You know, the way that South Africa play requires an intensity and a mental, a mental sort of superhuman effort, if you like to call. You can't raise yourself to that level every weekend. It's just not possible. We've got our game plan, which is, which is generally to dominate the set pieces. We do generally have a territorial kicking game, and we also have a very, very solid defensive pattern. But you can only raise yourself to that heightened level of intensity occasionally. You can't always be at 100%. And so when we aren't at 100% South Africa, you know, we can be counted quite easily as we have been by New Zealand, Zealand and also by Argentina this last weekend. But I know by the time we get to the World Cup, there's a lift of 20% in, uh, per player in intensity for South Africa. And that makes a massive difference because if you are that much more aggressive in the ball carry, you're that much more potent in defense, you're chasing that much harder for our box kicks and you're more desperate in terms of turning ball over on the ground, all the physicality that we're so good at just gets heightened in a World Cup game. So suddenly, you know, we might have been not at our best in the warm-up games, but the moment it counts, we're very hard to beat. We're a side that's very, very difficult to beat. The difference is when you play New Zealand, New Zealand might be a little bit off in terms of their physicality, but they're so, they're so skillful. They, 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 all of their players make such good decisions on the ball that they can still score four or five tries, even though they're not quite at the right, um, uh, at the right position physically. Um, with us, you know, we, we've made poor handling errors against and poor handling errors last weekend and against New Zealand. Yeah. Now, funny enough, when you concentrate, when you're really in the moment, you don't make those mistakes. And I don't think we're going to go into and we can't take three kickoffs, you know, yeah. five yards from the line. I don't think we're going to get a lock dropping the ball like Ori did or France Malherbe dropping the ball or Faf knocking it from a line out. You know, yeah. we saw Billy LaRue knocking the ball and looking up. Those sort of mistakes, you just don't, you're concentrating so hard it doesn't happen. So take away those mistakes. Now suddenly we're a different side. We're not a side based on skill as much as we are a side based on physicality. So we need that physicality and that intensity and that comes with a World Cup game. One of the big talking points around South Africa heading to the tournament is around Captain Siokalisi and his fitness. And there have obviously been some struggles getting him fit. So it looks like he will be fit, but the, the match fitness will be a concern, I guess, for the coaches going in. Yeah. There's a chapter where you talk about the relationship between coach and captain and how, how crucial that is to any World Cup campaign. You speak about your own experiences in 99 and the relationship you had with Uist yes. after a big decision on Gary Teichman. Yeah. But the common, the common thread is that, you know, it's a winner World Cup every coach has a strong relationship with his captain, every captain has a strong relationship with the group of players. Exactly. Uh, you speak about that leadership. If the box go into this World Cup without Sia Khaleesi, how concerning is that for that chain between coach and captain? Well, it depends on whether he's on the field or off. He's going to go to the World Cup, there's no question. I actually saw him, funny enough, uh, on, on, on Sunday after this game. He told me he's three weeks ahead of schedule. So if they thought he was already going to be right for the World Cup, he's three weeks ahead of that decision. So I'm pretty confident that he is going to get, he'll get there anyway, but he'll get there as a player. Because there are two ways of taking him. You know, you take him as, one, as the 33rd player, as the team and group leader, because he's got that much, he would be the, the mentor, if you like, for whoever's captaining the team. So if it's Dwayne or if it was Pollard or if it's Lucanio Am, you know, there are lots of leaders. But having someone like Sia Khaleesi with his arm around him and being there at all lunches and dinners and would be immense for South Africa. If he's on the field, it's much better. Obviously, yeah. it's much better. And, and the, the, good, the great thing about him, his relationship with Rusty is in, incredibly tight. And, and, and more importantly, the refs respect, uh, respect him tremendously. So 
You're wanting to win a World Cup, you've got to have the referee on your side. You've got to have your captain who understands how to address them during moments of difficulty. And Sia has learned so much in the last four years since captaining the World Cup in 2019, where he was probably an inexperienced captain, but he's no longer an inexperienced captain. He's a very experienced captain. And so having him is, is, is vital, but we'll have him either as a mentor or as a player. If he's a mentor, I do think someone like Dwayne will be able to carry through that captaincy style that isn't, you know, I'm right, everyone bloody listen to me. It's one which, is, which uh, garners information from everyone and then comes to a decision. So it's very democratic. He'll, you know, Dwayne also will ask, Pollard will ask, Vili will ask, Bongi, whoever's in the front row, you know, how's it going? What should we do? Scrum down here, should we kick for the corner? Is it a driving mall? They won't be just saying, go for polls. He'll be, they'll be discussing it amongst the leadership group. And I think having, having Sia there, is very, very important. But I, I do think we've got a good experience even underneath the fa- yeah. him if he, doesn't, if he doesn't make it. You mentioned the respect that referees have for Sia Khaleesi. Refereeing, huge in every test match, huge at every World Cup, uh, will, be, will be critical once again. How confident are you that A, the Springboks will be disciplined enough in yeah. the big moments, and that B, they will get those decisions going their way, that they have the respect yeah. of the referees in those big moments? I know it's a concern of yours going in. It is a concern of mine for off the field, in, you know, things that have happened off the field. I think on the field, we are disciplined. I think we, I think we do scrum correctly. I think our driving mall is set up correctly. I think the players are very aware of, where, of being offsides or not offsides from a box kick. We, we stay behind the last man's feet. The coaches are very, very good at coaching our team to play within the laws. It is unfortunately the feeling that the rest of the world has about South Africa that can count against us. When I say the feeling is, you know, the challenges that have been made to world rugby through the Lions tour and post the Lions tour. I've noticed referees be really tough on South Africa in the last year or so. And I'm just hoping by the time it gets to the World Cup that they will have said, okay, we've we've taught them a lesson. Now we're going to referee fairly. And I don't say biased because that's you calling someone a cheat and I think that you can't do that. But when I say fairly, you can be extremely fair um, by finding fault with, 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 with one team. You'll find the mistake, but you're only looking at one team. You're not looking at both teams. And that's what the referee has to do. He's got to be even-handed at looking at whoever our opponents are and South Africa. I get the impression sometimes that the, the referee's eye is more on us at the moment. And I think because they're irritated with uh, the challenges that have been made to world rugby in the last few years. Nick, we don't know what uh, Rassi Erasmus's future holds with South African rugby on 2025, but we know that 2023 and the World Cup in France will be Jacques Nienaba's last year. It is the end of an era, the Rassi-Jacques era of South African rugby and what everything they've contributed to Springbok rugby since 2018, the World Cup triumph in 2019. Do you think their legacy is defined by what happens in 2023? And just speak to that partnership, Rassi and Jacques, and what they've given SA Rugby. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think they already have a legacy on South African rugby. If you win a World Cup, uh, you, you know, you're only one of three coaches that ever done it. You've got Kitch Christie and Jake White and, and Rassi Erasmus and Jacques together. Uh, Rassi was the head coach. Um, they've always coached together, those two, right from um, Free State days, Free State, uh, the Stormers, uh, Munster, came back and did the, the box for these six years and they've been absolutely outstanding in every job that they've done. Really very, an incredible coaching partnership. Different personalities, but they combine so well together. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see for both of them, you know, how um, their careers develop post-2023. 
you know, I've spoken about the difficulty of the draw. And so this year, um, you know, we've beaten the British Lions under incredibly difficult circumstances. Now, we're preparing a team for this World Cup. We've got, we have to beat the fifth best team, the fourth best, the third best team, second best team, and the best team, plus a semi-finalist, wherever that comes from, you know. So to win this World Cup, we'll have to be outstanding. They are outstanding, but we've got bumps on the road, I think, there that we, that, that will be difficult to get over. And uh, so I wouldn't like to say that they will be judged on this alone. They'll be judged on their coaching career. And so far, it's been incredibly good. So I think that Jacques has made a decision probably to give himself a chance to develop his own personality without Rassi, because there's no doubt in South Africa, the, Rassi is, is a more extrovert personality. He's more in the papers. He's more charismatic in the sense that he's... Uh, he doesn't mind chatting and the players will talk about him. So Jacques is more, a little bit more introverted. And so this is an opportunity for him to, to make a, a reputation without. I mean, whenever they win, people say, well, it's uh, Rassi and Jacques, you know, but when they lose, it's only Jacques. I mean, that's a little bit unfair. You know, they're together all the time until they separate. And so they're both responsible for wins and they're both responsible if the team loses. You can't just blame one and not the other. Now that Jacques going, he's got a great job at Leinster and he'll do a fantastic job. What interests me is how South African rugby are going to play on without Jacques. There's going to be appointment, presumably, of another head coach. With Rassi certainly playing a mentoring role, doing the, what he does, which is involved. He's involved in the coaching and teams and tactics have to be signed off with him as director of rugby. So uh, it, I would be very surprised if it was anyone outside the present group of coaches. Yeah. They've built up such trust amongst each other and such understanding that as Wandili Stick or perhaps a Dion Davids, those two guys spring to mind as someone, as people who could step into the head coaching role and work very closely with Rassi for the following two years. But, you know, begs the question, what happens after 2025? Will Rassi want to then coach again by himself or will he be happy just being director of rugby and keeping on this mentoring role for another six years? You'll have been there then for 12 years, which is... I mean, he's not directly with the players, but it's a very long time to be in one job, especially a rugby job. So it's quite fascinating. But my view is that they've already made their mark on South African rugby. And this will be a Herculean effort, you know, climbing Everest to win this World Cup. I mean, it'll, that is how difficult it is. Yeah. So really, if they win this, you know, there's, you know they, 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 they are already probably the best coaching pair and Rassi probably the best coach South Africa's ever had. Yeah. If they win that, they'll go down as, as unquestionably the best. It is absolutely the most difficult World Cup the box will ever have to win if they do do it and it will be a Herculean effort. The question, Nick, is can they? Can the Springboks win this World Cup? And if not them, then who? Who will be their biggest threats at this tournament? We've got the coaching staff and we've got the players and we've got the depth to win this World Cup. Uh, whether we've got the momentum and the goodwill of world rugby referees is a question I put out there. I think that's the difficulty. So there's no problem with the way we, we can beat any team in the world with a fair crack of the whip. We've just got to get a fair, fair refereeing performance. Take uh, Jerome Goss's example in, the, in that game in 2019, the opening game. He didn't referee the New Zealand mistakes. He refereed what he felt like, which was New Zealand style of rugby. And then, you know, those mistakes were pointed out. He wasn't refereeing the laws correctly. By the time we got to the semi-final and the final, he refereed the laws and we won the semi-final and, and the final. Semi-final was tough against a team that played very similar rugby to us, but we were given benefit for our dominance in the scrum. By the time we got to the final, 
you know, we got all, we, you know, we, we got everything. We got the tries and we got the, 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 the dominance in the set pieces. So the same referee can give you a poor performance and then he can give you an outstanding performance because it was pointed out that you have to referee a side that collapses a scrum. You can't say play on from that. You have to penalize a side that takes out your lifter. You have to do that. And so that's the problem we have. We, it might be just one game. It might be the quarterfinal against New Zealand or against France. And suddenly we find the referee doesn't have such a good game and we're knocked out of that tournament. Because I do believe that we can beat Scotland. I do believe we can beat Ireland, mainly because of our physicality and the intensity we will bring to those two games. I'm not sure that those two sides can manage that. I think Ireland has the best playing pattern, but against a rush defence and physical ball carriers, no mistakes, coming short and hard at Sexton at 37 years old. He's going to have a very unpleasant afternoon. So I think we can get through that at top of that pool. But then we're playing New Zealand and France, and that is the bump I'm talking in the road. New Zealand are playing outstanding rugby again. That coaching change has made a massive difference to them. They're playing very physical, their scrum is so much better, their line-out is so much better, their attack is so much more direct than it was, and uh, they're getting the results from it. And France, 18 out of 19 games they've won, they're playing at home, they're desperate for a Northern Hemisphere side to win the World Cup, so we will go in as massive underdogs in that quarter-final. Those two teams, France and New Zealand, I would say have a very good chance of getting to the final, as do we and as do Ireland, but now we're going to get knocked out. Two of those are going to get knocked out, which will leave two standing. So that's going to be hard. On the other side of the draw, I think whoever wins our quarterfinal will beat the people in the, in, in, in the other side of the draw in the semifinal. So say, for example, we are playing against um, New Zealand. We don't perform well. New Zealand win that game. France play against Ireland. France beat Ireland. France will, pay, will play Wales or Australia, and whichever it is. Another one is Argentina in the, in the semi-final. And I think both will be strong enough to beat them, and they'll go through and play each other. So our side of the draw, I think, will get to the final. Yeah. In my view, that's, I mean, it's easy to say because they're the favourites, but I just look at the strengths of those teams compared with the issues that those other teams have on the other side of the draw. And I think in a semi-final, you're not going to get through. Uh, if you don't have all the strengths of France, South Africa, New Zealand, and Ireland. So there, you know, our, our, our game in the quarterfinal is like our final. Get through that, we will get to the final. There you have it. Thanks very much, Nick. Uh, your predictions and insights into the Rugby World Cup. Nick Mallett's insights into the Rugby World Cup in all bookstores around the country now. Uh, you can grab a copy. Well done again, Nick. It was a pleasure working with you. Really enjoyed it. A very fun process. Yeah, I hope it all goes well. If you look on the back, you'll see a picture of me praying that my predictions come true. <laughs> a lot can change. A lot can change. Thanks very much. That's News 24 uh, wrapping up. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.